12 ton Herman and Ziegler safe, Mr. D. It was impossible to break into. Time's up, let's go! What well, obviously wasn't fucking impossible to move, now was it, Paul? Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies. I'm Gareth Breen and joining me as always is my co-host Andrew Phillips. Had it doodly do. And with the release of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. we'll be aiming our guns squarely at Guy Ritchie's revolver. Should it be granted a reprieve or blasted to obscurity? That's what we're here to tell you. But first, cue the trailer. In every game and con, there is always an opponent. And there is always a victim. Jake Green got out today. Seven years goes by quick. Are you sure this is a good idea? He owes me and he owes you. Now he has to pay. It's cause and effect. Rule one of any game or con. You can only get smarter by playing a smarter opponent. I've been warned if I let you sit down at this table, I might regret it. I'll toss you for everything under your chin. You're on. What was security? They gassed him. It was impossible to break into. What well, obviously wasn't impossible to move, now was it, Paul? You don't even use that safe. Sam Gold's powder was in there. What's rule two of any game? The more sophisticated the game, the more sophisticated the opponent. Mr. Gold doesn't give more time, and he doesn't give second chances. No one sees gold, but gold sees everything. Sam Gold I found myself chained to. And the opponent is challenged means the victim's intelligence is questioned. Pull the troops together. There will be consequences. Macho Wangore. You think I'm afraid of the consequences? No one can accept that. We know Green's behind everything. Hurdle! Get in the car. If I wanted you dead, I would have shot you already. Sword of never misses. Something is very wrong here. Wake up, Mr. Green. No one lives and displeases gold. Do you know who Sam Gold is, Mr. Green? He's behind every crime ever committed. You'll always find a good opponent in the very last place you would ever look. Revolver follows ex-con Jake Green, played ably by Jason Statham's wig, who is blackmailed into stealing money from a casino owner and notorious gangster, Mr. D. Gunfights, convoluted dialogue exchanges, and an animated scene in which Ray Liotta's hands transform into guns follows in what can only be described as an enigma wrapped in a mystery delivered with a headbutt. So, Andy, is Guy Ritchie's Revolver a film you're familiar with at all? Uh, no. I was aware of it. I remember when the film came out, I remember the poster, and my dad has had it on DVD for years, and it's always been of a mild curiosity, because I've seen most of Guy Ritchie's other films, especially his earlier gangster films. Yeah, your dad's quite a Jason Statham aficionado, isn't he? He adores Jason Statham. He's a man of high taste. Yeah, my dad is incredible. He'll love really sophisticated films, and he loves his history films, but yeah, he'll 
by Jason Statham. He'll, he's very much a... Uh, he loves cheap crap films. He loves bargain basement yeah. films as well. He sounds like a man after my heart. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've all got our guilty pleasures. <laughs> if we and... ever did another podcast about bad films, there's probably many films I could drag out of his DVD collection that we could do. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> but yeah, this is a Best Forgotten Films first for me as well. I remember it being released, and the reviews were just poisonous at the time. Obviously, that's something we get into later. And that really stops me from going to see it. I've tried to watch it a couple of times and only got about 10 or 15 minutes in before turning it off. <laughs> so, I yeah. wonder why. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Mainly when the actual story started, I just, I, was, I haven't got time for this shit and just turned it over. The story starts? <laughs> Which story? Uh, many, many different stories. Yeah. Of which... Many, oh, yeah. I can't even be bothered to even go into them. <laughs> and with Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle coming out, I guess we had to watch one of his films, one of his forgotten films, and it really came down to the choice between Swept Away and Revolver. So, in order to choose, I guess you've got to ask yourself the question, which one has more Jason Statham? And <laughs> Revolver definitely wins out on that. Although I would definitely see a version of Swept Away in which Jason Statham plays the Madonna role. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to see that. I'm sure he's got the wig for it yeah. as well. I think it's also between seeing a film that actually was played in a cinema. Yeah, yeah. As well, because <laughs> Swept Away is definitely direct-to-DVD fodder. Yes, I mean, I can't even remember the film coming out. I, I just didn't remember- realise it even made it until... Uh, until we looked it up before. I thought it was a joke when it came out. Yeah. When, I, when I eventually found out about it, I thought it was a joke. And the biggest revelation I found was that Matthew Vaughan had produced it. Shame on you, Matthew I know. Vaughan. I, I'm thinking... Was you this, should know better. Yeah, I'm thinking, was this the point where they split up? Maybe Matthew Vaughan was involved in the film, didn't really want to make it, and then it was kind of the uh, straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, yeah, like, you just thought, I am above this shit, I cannot produce other people's bad work, I'm yeah. going to go and make my own good work. Because you can say this for both Revolver and Swept Away, they are both passion projects. Yes. In one way or another. Definitely, I mean, Revolver is a Guy Ritchie film through and through, but it's just the wrong type of Guy Ritchie film. I mean, you can tell it's a film that he's passionate about, and obviously we're going to get into that. Mm. But it doesn't come together in a very good way. It's got all of those elements that you normally see in a Guy Ritchie film, but they just add up to nothing. <sighs> yeah, I, I can't even get a handle of the film. When you get films where you can't even get a handle of them, it's uh, in any way, it's, yeah. not, it's not great news. And it's strange to put this film into context, as we always do when talking about when these films came out. Revolver was really a antidote to swept away at least it was intended to be that it was intended to be a return to form yeah and i think guy Ritchie wanted to rebrand himself as a bit of a deep thinker a spiritual person it's a definite cry for legitimacy oh yeah absolutely yeah it's like when an artist does an acoustic album it's a cry <laughs> for legitimacy <laughs> yeah yeah it's a cry for saying i am a filmmaker I can have my artistic hat on and my commercial hat on and win both ways. And in doing that, he does neither. Yeah, he, he fails spectacularly. <laughs> it's a film that really falls between two stools. Just to clarify, when you say stool, we're not talking about shit. No, it, I, we're talking I, about actual stools that you sit on. Oh, right. Well, because metaphorical stools. Yeah, this film is definitely one that falls between <laughs> two shits. It's definitely the middle shit. He's trying to appease too many people. Yeah in this effort to rebrand himself he's also trying to drag along 
the same individuals, the same crowd that made his name with yeah. Lockstock and Snatch. This film is about a con. I almost feel the process in the way that he made the film was almost a con too, because when you see people talking about the film and you see footage of people making the film, I have no doubt that they were under the impression that they were making another Snatch, another Lockstock. And ultimately, that's not what this film is. No, I, I have to ask. I mean, does anybody understand what this film is? I have to ask how these actors got involved with this film because I can't imagine them reading the scripts and understanding anything. They're clearly just on board based on his previous filmography. Yeah, yeah. There can't be any other reason why because the script doesn't make sense. <laughs> no. It's like alphabetic spaghetti. Yeah, I think the only person that understands the script is the co-writer, Luke Besson, because it's pretty clear that Guy Ritchie doesn't know what it's about either. No, no. <laughs> he thinks he knows what it's about, but he really doesn't. No, not so at all. I'm putting this one on Luke Besson, who's a master of creating um, coherent stories. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Lucy is the pinnacle of coherence. Of course. So usually this will be the point that we start to break down the plot of a film scene by scene, but... Considering just how incomprehensible Revolver is, it's not possible for us to do no. so in an entertaining way. It, it, it would take us about five hours. Yeah, it wouldn't benefit you, the listener, for us to do so. I think it's best if we just give a basic overview of the plot and then just get into our opinions. Maybe yeah. draw a reference to a few key scenes and a couple of dialogue exchanges that I really need to make sense of and hopefully you can help me. Mm. So basically, we're just going to throw our opinions out there. I can see how individual plot lines might have worked if they had just focused in on that. Yeah. But Guy Ritchie, he meanders and muses so much and he has all these ideas that he's just thrown at the screen hoping that anything sticks that it doesn't come together at all and it just ends up as a soup. I think I've said that before. I yeah. think it's, it's a soup of a film. It has no mass. It's just a mess. Revolver is the equivalent of a, a man packing a suitcase and having far too many items to put in the suitcase, but he's tried to shove them in anyway. I guess to finish that metaphor, he's given a suitcase to the audience, they open it, and it just explodes in their <laughs> face. Yeah. yeah, And you've got this whole <laughs> I room. I never thought I'd hear you say exploding in your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, Andy. Yeah, it means I won that bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start then? Where do we start? Where do we start? <laughs> okay, well, like say... Uh, it's interesting as well just to make out, when I was watching this film, I constantly had to refer to the Wikipedia plot outline, which is actually written out in chronological order, because this film does not take place in chronological order, and it was the only way I could get any sense of what was actually going on. Well, that's music to my ears, because I haven't looked at the Wikipedia page, I haven't looked at a write-up of the plot... I've just watched the film and I have no idea what happened. I think I have a vague idea, let's say, of some of the themes that Guy Ritchie was going yeah. for and how he implemented them and how they didn't work. So hopefully you can shed some light on some <laughs> of the questions that I have about the story. Well, it's interesting to note when you do read the Wikipedia breakdown, someone has tried to simplify the story, but even so, it still doesn't quite make sense. You still can't quite get a grasp of it. I imagine that you have to be an insane individual to try and make sense of this. And I guess that's yeah. what we're here for. I can't, yeah, that doesn't really nice. vouch too well for our sanity. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the film starts with Jake Green coming out of prison from um, a seven-year stint, is it, in solitary confinement? Yeah, seven years. And then it cuts to two years ahead, and he's amassed this great fortune I, I that we never the see. Films that 
start with a briefest introduction and then cut to two years later. That's never a good sign. It's literally just him walking out of a prison. It's stuff that could be just covered in dialogue. We don't need to see a scene of him actually walking out of the prison just one shot and then two years later. In the following scene, he's on his way to a casino and it's and we're led to believe that he's on a little bit of a rampage of revenge in order to get money back from Ray Liotta's Mr. D. And we have no idea what their relationship or where this idea of revenge has come from. We think it might have something to do with him being in prison, but we're, we're given no information why. And actually, at this point, I thought the film was a heist. Yeah, I thought it was setting up a heist. It was like the end of Ocean's Eleven <laughs> without any of the lead up. And then it turns out that that wasn't what it was going for whatsoever. No. And in turn, we're bombarded with a whole heap of shit. We have about four different quotes in very quick succession, which are not even up on the screen long enough for you to even read them. No, I and couldn't tell you what cutting. a single one of them said, no. actually. It was no, just the, gone. They're all quotes referring to gameplay. Pretty oh. much from different eras in time. So they're all legitimate quotes. There is that one about playing a smarter opponent, and that does get referenced in the film. That's the only way that I remember it. From what I gather from the making of documentary, I think they're there to introduce the four main sections of the film. I yeah. couldn't tell you what they are, but they're there to introduce the four main ideas of the film. It's all a bit Quentin Tarantino, isn't it? It's like a half-baked Tarantino It's like somebody's method. trying to do what Tarantino did in terms of... Tarantino makes films that have all of these different influences, but they come together to form something original and entertaining. And Guy Ritchie's really trying his hand at that, but what he forms, it's neither original nor does it entertain. Yeah, He's trying for that, he's aiming for that, but he's missing, yeah. and he's missing by miles. It's also interesting to note that this film takes place in what is referred to as No Man's Land by the filmmakers. I was very confused when I first watched this film. I thought that we were in Las Vegas or Atlantic City. And then a couple of scenes later, it's immediately obvious that we're in neither place. And it's a strange mix of English seaside and glitzy American city. Yeah, it's got the skyscrapers of Las Vegas. And yet on street level, it's the Isle of Man. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And it's not coherent whatsoever, much like the rest of the film. They shot this film on sound stages against green screen and then on location in London and the Isle of Man. Oh, right. So that, so that makes sense. There, that's there how we go. it plays out. There's no scenes shot in America at all. But you would be kidded to believe that you were in America at the start of the film. And there's a couple of rooftop scenes and you're given this landscape of skyscrapers mm. and... It just feels so artificial. And you're given no references to why this is. There's not enough dealt with the fact that we're in this no man's land. Usually when you have films that are built in these kinds of worlds, it's made a big deal of. For example, well, you've got Sin City. And even on the other end of the spectrum, we've got a film like The Borrowers. Peter Hewitt's film from 97. That has a very stylized out of time feel, but it makes a lot out of it. Yeah. And why that film works is because it's tonally consistent. Yeah. That world that's created is consistent in and of itself. This world is not. We see the skyscrapers that belong more so in Sin City. And yet on ground level, it's more like Snatch and Lockstock and Two Smoke and Barrels. And that sums up a real problem that this film has in which nothing gels, nothing comes together. There are some great ideas, there are some great individual scenes, but nothing gels with what's around it. Yeah, it has a real identity crisis. Yeah, that's exactly what it has. So, just before we go any further, 
I think we should just give a tiny sliver of the plot, what we understand of it, just so you, the audience, can get your fingernails into this film and mm. hopefully you can make more sense of it than we can. So after winning a bet with Mr. D, the crime boss played by Ray Liotta, Jake is drugged and told he is dying by two other criminals. They blackmail Jake into both handing over his cash and helping them steal money from Mr. D. Meanwhile, Mr. D is trying to secure a drug deal with the head honcho of all criminal activity, Mr. Gold. But his plans are thrown into turmoil when both his money and his drugs are stolen. So far, it's not too complicated. I mean, you can follow that. In the way you're saying it, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. In the <laughs> not film, in the way the film says it. <laughs> the film doesn't present it as straightforward no. as that. But that was my understanding as what was yeah. going on to this point. I must inform the audience that this is only about the first five or ten minutes of the film. But it's not that complicated. You can just about follow what's going on despite all the meanderings. So we don't know the motivations behind anything that any of these characters are doing. But we're led to believe that the director is going to put everything into context as the film goes on. And unfortunately... He decides not to. Instead of telling a straight gangster story, Richie uses it as a springboard for Kabbalah-like musings about self, ego, the purpose of existence. And it's around this point that the film just disappears right up its own arse. Yeah, it's in one way a crime caper, as Guy Ritchie's first two films expertly demonstrate. But then it tries to introduce all these philosophies and musings and, yeah, it very quickly becomes an incoherent, massive poo. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those films where you're not sure who's conning who, and everybody seems to be conning each other, and you don't even have a grasp on what the stakes are. At this point in the film, Jake thinks he's dying in a very escape-from-New-York type of way. He's yeah. being blackmailed into doing something for two other shady criminals. What are their names again? Avi and Zach. Yeah, he's yeah. been blackmailed by Avi and Zach into stealing money from Ray Liotta. I mean, that's straightforward, but the way that it's presented just fails to make sense. Now, uh, Avi being played by Andre Benjamin of Outcast fame, and Zach being played by Vincent Pastore. Of The Sopranos. Yes, and other gangster films. Oh, yeah. Other gangster films are available. <laughs> but could you make sense of these two characters? Because I, I think it's around these two characters that the film really starts to fall apart. Yeah, they are meant to be the key. Yeah. But you don't know why. No. And I'm still at a loss as to whether these characters are real or a figment of Jack's imagination. I mean, I'm... Part of his personality. I'm still at a loss as to whether the whole film and the whole world that is created yeah. <laughs> is real or just a figment of his imagination. Or whether it's it doesn't really come to any sort of conclusion no i mean at one point in the film i was still thinking jake was in solitary confinement and this was just something that he had created in order to pass the time yeah at one point you're led to believe that at other points you're not led to believe that yeah the film's very consistent for that there's things that would happen that make you believe it for about five minutes and then something else will happen which will contradict that i feel like this is a film that guy Ritchie was writing and he just continually found twist after twist after twist. He was like, wouldn't it be cool if mm. we made a film about this idea? And then he had another idea for another film that had another twist. And was like, actually, we can incorporate that into this film. And then he just started smashing these ideas together. Even though they didn't work, they were like two different puzzle pieces from two different puzzles. It's, all, it's that all over. Yeah, it really is. Exploding in your face. This is basically Guy Ritchie exploding in your face. <laughs> hey, and if that's what you want from a film, you are going to love Revolver. Yeah. 
Yeah, we spoke earlier about how Guy Ritchie got this cast together. And I just want to emphasise that this is a really strong cast. Yeah. And it's people putting in really good work. At mm. least some people putting in really good work. Mm. I mean, what did you make of it? Yeah, it's... It's almost again. It goes back to this con thing. It feels like they're led to believe that they're in a certain type of film. They're putting their all into being that kind of character for that kind of film. Yeah. But then in the editing process, it's all been messed around. So I, I I'd love to get the opinion or views of one of these actors that's, that's actually been in this film and what they think of the film in the aftermath. I feel like this is a film that's changed as it's developed as well yeah. as it's gone through the entire production that in pre-production it was a different film in production it was another film and in post they changed it once more yeah so i don't think at any point these people knew what they were making yeah i don't feel there was a clear game plan and to talk about one of the performances in particular i really liked ray Liotta as mr d there are scenes that we will get into later that really give him time to shine and there's one where he gets to show himself in a very pathetic light and he relishes the opportunity and he provides the film with one of its strongest scenes just through his performance alone. Yeah. I really wish this film delivered to that level throughout. This film should have been a great comeback for him. Like we were talking about earlier, this role was the Brad Pitt role out yeah. of Snatch. This was the American actor coming into a British film and getting something out of it. Yeah. And I don't think Ray Liotta got anything out of this film. No, and that Brad Pitt role in Snatch is iconic. It was an instant icon. Everybody could do the impressions and everybody was. And even now, people still talk about it. Mm. And although the Ray Liotta character doesn't have as many quirks as that one, he's still putting in just as much effort. And he puts himself through a lot as well. I mean, we get to see him in UV light completely naked. His teeth are practically glow in the dark. Gets his finger blown off. He uh, sleeps in a hairnet. <laughs> so he does yeah so. and if there's ever a film that you want to see just Ray Liotta running about in his undies this, <laughs> this is, is the one this is the get this is the one so for all the Ray Liotta fan clubs out there if you've not seen Revolver and I'm pretty sure you have this is probably one you'll cherish <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's Ray Liotta I mean what did you think of Jason Statham he works in certain kind of films but I'm not sure whether in this film he was the completely the right choice yeah. I kind of feel that another actor might have been better in this role. Because, again, going into this no-man's-land situation where it's a strange mix of American and British, I feel he's almost too regional to be that particular role. And it jars quite a lot against some of the American actors. And going into the style of the film with the voiceovers, which is incredibly intrusive at times. I couldn't stop thinking about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. It really <laughs> reminded me of Matthew Holness's Garth Marenghi spiel when he's talking over the scenes, and it kind of felt really amateurish to me. I think I slightly disagree with you in terms of the Garth Marenghi dialogue. I do think it is Garth Marenghi-esque, but I think that's more down to the writing Mm. rather than it is to Jason Statham's performance. Yeah, yeah. This film has its own separate musing about this narration. It almost serves a purpose to the plot. The film seems to be about, on some thematic level, about the inner monologue we all have going on in our heads and being able to divorce ourselves from that in some way. At least that's what I think. Yeah. It seems to be that this inner monologue is our ego edging us on to do things and setting out the path in front of us. At least that's what one character says at some point. They make direct reference to Jason Statham's narration. 
And I think it comes from that writing rather than his performance. Although I do agree that in this film, things don't match and he does fall into that category. There are a lot of other street-level gangsters that all seem to speak with regional accents. Yeah. Whereas everybody in the glass towers are like American mob bosses. Yeah, they're either American or they're more well-spoken English people. And even in the opening sequence, the mix between Statham and Leota didn't quite work for me. No, they do feel like two separate actors working on two separate levels. They're not reading each other's energies properly. or And that's a scene that comes across as a bit of a dud. It's supposed to be this cool and somewhat intense scene in which Jake Green's putting all of his money on the line. That we haven't seen at this point. All no. we've seen is him come out of jail and then no. suddenly he's amassed his fortune. You don't find out until the last 20 minutes that he's got a lot of money. Yeah. And this is tense game between the two actors which jars because of their styles. Yeah. And I didn't even know that he'd won at the end. No, I had no idea. The, um, there's many references to games and we don't even see this one. It's all played in close-up shots and you never see any coverage of the game itself and even of anybody's hands moving. No. Nope. You just see things underneath the screen and i wasn't even aware that statham had even won the game i have no idea how much money was involved in this i think guy Ritchie was going for the idea that the stakes are being played out on the characters faces and the actors eyes you can see the stakes it's all about ego but it just doesn't land there are no stakes in the scene thus there is no tension but there are other english actors who work within the context of the american actors and one of them is mark strong as oh, yeah. the sorter, who's Mr. D's head assassin. And he has a strange mid-Atlantic stutter. Yeah. And it seems to work really well for the film. I like the character. That's a character that I actually like on the paper as well. I would have rather seen a film about that character. Yeah. I wish the film had more characters like that, that you could instantly identify with. Mm. I like that in his profession, everybody referred to him like a Leon type. Yeah. He was very professional. And yet, when we see him outside of his job, he's actually quite gentle. He's a little bit softer. Yeah, but at the same time, he's a character that you could pull out of the main structure of the film and you wouldn't miss him. He doesn't have a payoff that leads into no, the end game. He's another diversion. Yeah, he's an interesting diversion, but yeah, a he, diversion nonetheless. He's, I mean, this film is full of interesting scenes and scenes that work. I mean, talking about Sorter, there's a scene later in the film with an assassination attempt on Ray Liotta's Mr. D that Sorter manages to stop. And there's this really tense scene played out with Ray Liotta on the floor with his bodyguards on top of him. And he's faced with this wounded would-be assassin. Yeah, Yeah. And she's got a gun in her hand still. And she's using the very last of her strength to try and lift the gun and aim it. Straight at Mr. D. Who's trying to be protected by his goons. Yeah, he's being held down to the floor. being held down, he's at more risk than he would be standing up at this point. And his goons can't see her because they're too busy looking about for any other potential threat. And they can't hear him screaming up to him because they're too busy shouting, causing too much of a commotion. It's all done visually. All the noise has been muted out. And it's all done with the visuals and the music. And it's pure cinema. It's a great scene. It's suspenseful. It's entertaining. I actually felt something watching it. It's where his ambitions for the film come to fruition and they really work. And there's unfortunately just not enough of it to sustain the running time. Yeah, and it's another scene in which the film is played far straighter. There's no wrapping the film up in a mystery in this scene. It's just a straight suspense story told in a couple of shots. And that's when the film works best. 
is when it's at its simplest. Like you say, it's pure cinema. The character that's holding him down is one of his goons, and he's played by Ricky Grover. And going back to this no man's land, neither America or Britain situation, he is dubbed incredibly badly. Yeah. He is a, a London guy, but he's been dubbed to be American for no reason. No. But it just comes off as bad dubbing, and I'm not quite sure what happened there. I wonder if that was something determined by the American money. Perhaps yeah. his accent was too thick, but then this film has plenty of other thick London accents. I feel like a lot of what this film is was made in post, actually. Mm. Um, a lot of the style... A lot, a lot of, of the story-making decisions. Exactly. They've been made after the film's been shot, which is not the best way to make a film whatsoever. No good film comes from that type of filmmaking. But I feel like that's where one of its greatest flaws is, that they've just shaped it in post. It just feels that this is a work in progress that's been yeah. shot, and it still feels like it's been a work in progress in the editing stage. Yeah, I mean, it comes as no surprise to me to hear that they were actually writing the script while they were filming as well. Mm -hmm. And every day they got a new pages. Just, hey, go, just say this, please. Just. I think the most enlightening things were the two making of documentaries that we saw that were on the DVD. Yeah. The editing documentary and the making of. The making of functions in that level where they were making it up as they were going along. It also serves the idea that the actors and the crew were thinking they were making another Snatch or another Lockstock, and they genuinely believe they were. The editing documentary is a complete contrast to that. It's almost like... Once we're in the editing room, Guy Ritchie's going, ha I fooled them. Now I can do the film I really want to make. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It, that's exactly how it comes across. And it's during this documentary that we get a sense of one key decision to take the film in a completely other direction, which is the animated sequence. Yeah. This whole sequence is a good one to demonstrate the ideas that they're trying to shove into this. What would normally be a conventional heist situation and the thoughts behind how we play this out stylistically and also how we edit this all together. Yeah. It's probably the best example in the whole film to really get inside the head of the director and see his thought processes. Just to give you some context as to where this animated sequence falls in the film, after stealing all of Mr. D's money and drugs, he is forced to make a deal with Chinese gangsters. And in the meeting where there's supposed to be an exchange of the drugs to Mr. D... That's where our guys come in, Jake and Avi and... Oh, what's the other guy called? Zach. Zach. Yeah. Avi and Zach, yeah. Yeah, they've kind of pitted Mr. D against another gangster called Lord John, who's the Chinese fella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very strange Chinese man who lives in red light. And in the documentary, Guy Ritchie gives a really great and very racist impression of a Chinese person yeah. while, while talking to this actor. <laughs> but, I uh, recommend everybody to look at it. <laughs> Is that hot cocksucker? Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> it. That's, That's exactly it. Um, but the idea is that this trio have turned Lord John and Mr. D on each other. They both yeah. think that one another has stolen the loot and the money. And yeah. it's just a, a whole ruse just to get almost internal gang warfare going on. And the way that they've stole the money and the drugs is by filling the Chinese drug dealer's room full of sleeping gas. And it knocks them out. And all this is told through a mix of live action and animation. And it's all told completely out of sequence. Yes. So I wrote this down as well, just to get my head around it. It starts with an elevator sequence involving the trio and their assistant. Yeah. And that is before 
So that is them setting up this con. Then we jump cut to the end of the sequence where Lord John and Mr. D are freaking out because they've lost all this stuff. That's where Rayleigh's hands turn into guns. Yeah, and they're chiding their henchmen for failing so badly. And this is also still intercut with before with the elevator sequence. Because I think Garrich is thinking, oh, I'm being clever because yeah. I'm showing people before and after. And then proceeds to play out the main part of the sequence in chronological order. Somebody else who did it in that order could have made it work. Yeah. But in this way, it just feels like a complete mess. No, I didn't have a clue what was going on. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if, if you're going to get a pull quote from me to put on the poster, it's probably going to say, I didn't have a clue what was going on. Yeah. That would be Gareth Green, Revolver. Yeah. <laughs> Even just on a cutting front, it makes no sense. And then they throw this other wild card of having half the sequence in animation. And you're just going, what the fuck is going on? And you can tell that it was Why a Why is this going on? Yeah. Why have they done this? You can tell it was a decision made in post because it actually serves no purpose. In the documentary, Guy Ritchie says that they originally intended to include an animated sequence in the film, but when Kill Bill came out, they were forced into cutting it completely. And it was only in post that they decided, you know what, fuck it, we're going to add it back in. Yeah. And you can really tell that yeah. it was a rushed decision made in post because the animation isn't that great. It's going for a gorillas type of style, but it doesn't quite work. And it tries to plunge you into that world by using televisions, but doesn't even use that in a meaningful way. I mean, just to contrast it with... Another film that uses that idea, uh, Run, Lola, Run, where it jumps into a television and you see an animated Lola run past various animated scenarios in a chase sequence. That works because it gives you a proper grounding. It leads you into the television. It's saying, this is where we're going. Whereas this sequence tries to use that idea, but yeah. doesn't make it clear enough. So it just happens all of a sudden. Yeah, and it comes across as chaotic. Run, Lola, Run uses this idea throughout the whole film yeah it becomes a familiar idea whereas this film just uses it the once if it had used it more than once it would have felt more normal within the context of the whole film well that's it it's tonally inconsistent with the rest of the film and you just get the idea that it's there to look cool in the way that they've shot the film it being in the no man's land situation using a lot of green screen at times in terms of the trans lights and the backgrounds and even in the colour grading, it does give it another worldly feel, but this doesn't prepare you for what happens here. No, it, it doesn't at all. And even the world itself, like I said earlier, it does give you an otherworldly feel. You don't feel like this place is real, but at times you feel Guy Ritchie wants you to think it's real, and at other times it's literally a cartoon. It's either heightened or brutal realism. Yeah, and I just don't understand what he wants from me as an audience member. Where is my way into this film? If it's this inconsistent, I've got no way to get my teeth and claws into this film whatsoever. Even on the, the editing documentary, you get the feeling that he thinks, ah, oh, someone will get it. Yeah, yeah, you do. Someone yeah. will get it. We're bound to get a couple of people and anyone else is fucking. Because <laughs> we're above all this shit. To be honest, that sums up this film. Anyone else, fuck him. That's yeah. what Guy Ritchie is saying. I feel like Guy Ritchie is the only person that understands this film. And his mentality going into it is, anyone else, fuck him. This is the film I am making. And still, I don't even think he really understands it either. No, no. no. I think he has a vague grasp. Probably yeah. slightly better than us. Yeah. But I don't think this came together in the way that he wanted to. No. And there's another great sequence in the making of documentary where 
it's when they're filming the Ray Liotta assassination attempt. Yeah. And he talks to all some of his crew members and some other younger people that I don't know why. But he's talking about how the film took two years to fund. And he was talking about how difficult it is raising money for a film where the backers don't understand it. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> of course it is. That would be for anybody. But it wouldn't be so bad if the film had a through line that mm. you could follow. Everything else around that could be confusing and just completely indecipherable, as long as you had a line that you could follow. I mean, to use a lesser example of something that's quite complex, but Inception was a film that had a lot of general audiences scratching their head about the structure of the film. But it had a through line, an emotional through line that was easy to follow. Yeah. And that's why it made as much impact as it did at the yeah. time. It's because nobody left there thinking, what the fuck happened? Yeah. They understood the emotional journey, could follow that, and the dressing around it, as confusing as it was structurally, it didn't matter. Inception was a very simple idea told yes. in a very complicated way. Exactly, yeah. Whereas this is a complicated idea told in a complicated way by simple people. Put it on the poster. Put it on the poster. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's... Uh, I think the ideas thrown around at this film are far out of reach of the talent that's involved. It needed a better filmmaker to come along and take this by the horns and make it into something that made sense. This film is Guy Ritchie thinking of himself as a deep and complicated individual. Yeah. But what it actually needed was an actual deep and complicated individual to make sense of it. Yeah, and I think the film's overall reception afterwards was a, a massive slap in the face for him because in terms of all the films he's made following Revolver, he's really gone back into that more commercial safe haven that he's much more comfortable in and works much better in. Rock and Roll It is what followed Revolver, and it's a much better, straighter story. Mm. It's simply told. It's full of the usual Guy Ritchie characters. It's not quite lock, stock or snatch, but it's a very entertaining film. And it's clear that that's the wheelhouse in which he really works well. Even following on from that, he's become a studio director. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes. He's just done The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and he's doing the new King Arthur film, which is going to be another one of these bonkers shared universe things. Oh, yeah. Something which like probably six, won't work. Six sequels already planned. Don't cancel it after the first Just one. get one film right. Yeah. Just get one film right. And then and then you can start thinking about <laughs> and it. Just, ah, it's yeah. utterly bonkers. It's, but, it's Shared universe has gone completely out of hand. But I guess we'll save that for a, but another film. Even in those films, there's certain ideas that he's been experimenting with on this one that do come to fruition in terms of how he plays with the edit. And yeah. certain other things, but they're much more assured and they're within the context of these big tentpole films. So I think it's about time that we really get to this second act twist where we're not quite sure if it's real or not. Yeah. Or if it even matters. But there is this twist where Jake is on a rooftop with Avi and Zach and Oh wait, no, it's just Avi, isn't it? No, they're both there. They're both playing oh, golf. Right. So <laughs> they're so nondescript, I almost forget they're there. They're not no, no. For how much they're meant to be in the film and a key to the, how this all works, they're not very interesting. No, they don't seem to add they're much. They're just there to be enigmatic. They're meant to represent something. You can tell. You don't have any idea what. If we want to go into the whole philosophical element, there's a lot of ideas of the Kabbalah, which is a school of thought. I think it's meant to be derived from Judaism. Oh. And I won't go too much into it, but it's about... 
life processes and all sorts of gubbins. And this whole trio is meant to be modelled around the three pillars of Kabbalah energies. So you've got left, right and centre. And Jason Statham is the centre pillar. And that is meant to represent the colour green, which is why his name is Jake Green. The character of Avi is the left pillar, which is the feminine slash black pillar. So one, he is played by a black actor and also he's wearing very effeminate, metrosexual, stylized clothes. Yeah. And the character of Zack is meant to be the right pillar, who dresses down and is the more masculine figure of the two. So being a sort of mob boss, that embodies the masculine nature of his character. And they're all meant to be the significant trio, and I think they're all meant to be one, which, again, I'm not quite sure whether they are real or not, but that's how they are. But they have all these things, but... They're still not interesting enough. There isn't much to differentiate them from each other other than the way that they look. No. As a character, they seem two parts of the same person. Well, I think that's what it's trying to demonstrate, but they just talk in cryptic dialogue and they don't have any personality of their own. No, they don't. I get that they're all supposed to represent the same person or maybe are supposed to represent the same person and perhaps they are figments of Jake's imagination. But you would still expect that for them to be these two separate entities that come together to make something else it's just so confusing and i'm yeah. so fed up of talking about yeah. all this and, philosophical shite and all this stuff leads up to this elevator sequence which is meant to be the huge twist of the film but we're not really given any insight as to what this twist is it makes so much out of it and I actually even, to be honest, my notes of this film, I've never seen so many question marks and where is this? Why is this? Yep. And even for this particular sequence, I've just got elevator, blue scene, WTF. Yeah, Jake's having this moment in an elevator where he seems to be doubting himself and who he is and the narration that's going on in his head, this inner monologue, he's trying to divorce himself from it and overcome it. He realizes that this is the thing that's been leading him on this path. I mean, that's me trying to make sense of it. Mm. I don't know if that's what the film is actually telling me, but that's me trying to make any kind of sense out of that scene. I almost feel that Ray Liotta's reaction to Jason Statham is the audience reaction to what's going on. (laughs) This is, uh, he's in tears, he's almost shitting himself. He's just like, fear me, fear me. It's a great performance in that scene. I I love it. Him standing there almost naked in his Grundies with a gun in his hand. Grundies, uh, for the Americans in the audience here, Grundies stands for underpants. Yes, yes, I should clarify, yes. (laughs) (laughs) He looks so pathetic and he's demanding to be feared tearfully demanding to Mm. be feared i should add jake just walks right past him i feel like in a film that made more sense that would have been an incredibly impactful scene i'm like wow this is really powerful but why it's gone before it i'm i can't feel anything i can see that ray is putting us all into this performance but unfortunately for him everything around it is not given any kind of dramatic backing in order to make it significant moment for him. Yeah. It just comes off as, oh, really, Ota's acting. It does. Uh, Richie is giving him something to work with, but it doesn't pay off. He's an actor that deserves far more than the material that he's given in a lot of his films. Yeah, and his performance in Revolver is a performance that deserves recognition, mm. and it's never going to get that because it's never going to have an audience. That is the second act twist. <laughs> There is yet another twist to come in the film, which is that maybe it's revealed that Zack and Avi shared the same prison when Jake was locked up. 
But they may or may not have. They may or may not have. Or they may be a figment of his imagination still. Because Statham never saw or heard from these two guys because he was in solitary confinement. So they may or may not be these people. So we really should clarify who these prisoners are that Jake talks about previously Mm. in the film. But while Jake is in solitary confinement, he finds himself wedged between a con man and a chess player and they're constantly sending notes back and forth and he keeps on intercepting their notes as they go past and he's learning as he goes he's reading what they have to say and he's building up his own ideas of how to deceive others and how to become a smarter individual they want to create the perfect con so they concoct this formula that makes it impossible to lose in a game there's all this gubbins about the smarter your opponent is, the more complicated the game. There's yeah. many of these quotes. And that, you can only grow as a player if you play a smarter opponent. Yeah, and it's about looking dumber than your opponent. Yeah. And lots of different things like that. They conspire to break out of prison, and then all of a sudden they disappear. Yeah. So you are led to believe that they aren't real, and he's got this multiple personality disorder. Later on he goes, we are you. This is yep. the twist. This is the third act twist. But there are other points in the film where these characters literally pull him or rescue him out of a sequence of events. That led me down the path of thinking that perhaps this whole world is inside his head or the only two people that actually occupy this world are Mr. D and Jake. Even Mr. D might be a figment of his imagination. They keep on referring to this character, Mr. Gold, who's the head honcho of all criminal activity, and we never see him. Who who, who the fuck is Mr. Gold? They do, but then there are many sequences involving Mr. D that don't involve Jake. It's really unclear as to what angle the director is trying to go for. No, it doesn't seem to work even by its own understanding. It's like a jigsaw puzzle being made out of three different jigsaw sets. Yeah, it is. It's a complete clusterfuck, is what you would call it. (laughs) He should have renamed this film Clusterfuck. Would have made sense. Yeah, it would have yeah. actually probably made more money because people have gone, oh yeah, it is a Clusterfuck. That's what he's going for. <laughs> but he would have had five-star reviews then. Mark Commode would have given it thumbs up. So yeah, I'd still give it a thumb up. Thumb up its arse. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a thumb up Guy Ritchie's arse? Yeah, hey, whatever floats If uh, Guy Ritchie does ever listen to this podcast, Gaz would really love to put his thumb up your ass. I'm a writer for high, and I'm yeah. willing to put my thumb up anyone's ass for a job. That's uh, King Arthur 2 there for you, Gaz. <laughs> Brilliant, can't wait. <laughs> Another film that's never going to get made. <laughs> oh, wait, I've got something else to say about this this shit twist. Um... Shit twist. That, yeah. that, that, shit, that, shit twist the movie. Shit twist can be another title for this film. <laughs> shit twist. <laughs> so... As I've said earlier, this isn't a film that you can really derive enjoyment out of trying to figure out the twist and what it means. There's a few riffs on the best trick the devil ever pulled line from The Usual Suspects, and I imagine it actually came from another source entirely. But it leads me to believe that this twist was supposed to be the type that redefines the rest of the film. But it doesn't, because it's just lost. It's just lost in a dense mess of ideas and philosophical meanderings. Mm. Last pause for thought is really the idea about the ego overcoming the person in the con. Yeah. And Jake overcomes it, and Mr. D doesn't overcome it. He ends up shooting himself because he can't overcome the idea of Jake. Yeah. There's. He just. 
This, 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 this <laughs> Yuffie light is Statham's looking at him in a very he's, yeah. he's giving him the stare Raylia has put himself through a lot of acting and uh, decides to shoot himself and that's the end of the film and it was at this point where we get it cuts to black and we get 2005 copyright Europa Corp and then limited. Three, three minutes and of then blank three screen. minutes of blank screen and exit music and I was almost screaming please give me some credits so I can have something normal <laughs> please give me something conventional just, just anything and I, I can get through, my teeth I sat into. through the whole three minutes thinking oh the credits are going to come any yeah, they're moment coming. now they're coming any now any moment now now Someone's got to get credit for this this thing, <laughs> and it's almost like you know what? I bet everybody actually took their credits. Yeah, like, don't that, don't credit me like, on this film. I mean, even Guy Ritchie himself took his name off the film because <laughs> there's no. <laughs> so I mean, really, that's all we've got to say about the film itself. There are plenty of other little bits that we can pick apart, but I have nothing more to add. Do you have anything, Andy? No, it's just worth knowing that the editors didn't understand the script when they started work on this film, which speaks volumes as to how it turned out. I mean, that's completely understandable, considering the final result. Even in the editor's documentary, he keeps saying, if you get it, if you get it. And uh, unfortunately, for a film of this type, made with this cast and on this kind of money, that ain't good enough. It needs more than that. It does. It needs to be, on its most basic level, easy to follow. It just, yeah. just needs to have a through line. And uh, instead of being called Guy Ritchie's Revolver, it really should be called Guy Ritchie's Hubris. <laughs> yeah. There always is the time in almost every film director's career where they make that film that is their hubris moment where they've gone too far and this is Guy Ritchie's Hubris moment. Yeah, they've been given enough rope to hang themselves. Yeah. And they have to meekly go back to the hand that feeds them and start to relearn we watched another film recently that's john borman's moment that's zardos zardos, this zardos. Is guy, yeah this is guy rich's zardos another poster quote <laughs> <laughs> if you like zardos you'll love revolver doesn't star sean connery unfortunately but uh could you imagine jason statham and sean connery's mankini he does have the sean wig. connery tash though doesn't he he does he does it's he does he looks like zardos that's really weird actually he, yeah he they've does. made him look like zardos complete with uh, long hair and tash that's All weird. he's that's, missing that's is creepy. his outfit from the Erasure video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it painted silver in a leotard and uh, had that tash, that would have been perfect. That would yeah. have been the perfect amalgamation between Zardos and Revolver. That's a film I actually want to see. Yeah, with the singer from Erasure doing it, the soundtrack. Erasure it, doing the soundtrack. That would have been amazing. Oh, we are making oh. films here on Best Forgotten Movies. You've heard it here first. <laughs> so why have these films been forgotten? You've heard our opinions, but perhaps there are actually clues in the facts. So, shall we start with the critics? Just at the end of this Edison's documentary that we saw, it did seem like it had been filmed sometime after the film had been released, and towards the end you get an inkling that the director's realised he's gone too far, and he's been lambasted for it, like, in the worst way possible, and he's almost slightly embarrassed about the film, but he's watched the film... Can't see anything wrong with it, but he knows deep down in his heart that there is something wrong with it, but he just can't see it. He knows there's something wrong with it because it hasn't landed with so many people. Yeah. But going to critics' reviews, and God, this was ripped to shreds when it came out. But on Rotten Tomatoes, this has a grand total of 17%, based on an average rating of 3.6 out of 10. Oh, shit. Roger Ebert gave this 0.5 out of 4. I'm not sure whether you want to read Ebert's yes. quote. I've actually got a quote from Roger Ebert because it is 
quite a fantastic review. Most of Roger Ebert's reviews are worth reading, but it's it's especially good when he gets quite as venomous as he does here. Mm. So may he rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I laughing? Why am I laughing? <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. So I'm laughing because I'm thinking about Roger Ebert's quote, and this is how he signs off in his review. Some of the acting is better than the film deserves. Make that all of the acting. Actually, the film stock itself is better than the film deserves. <laughs> you know when sometimes a film catches fire inside a projector? If it happened to this one, I suspect the audience might cheer. <laughs> and that's, that's how he signs off the review. I'm not quite as sure I'd be as venomous as he is in this review. <laughs> but there's no cynicism on display in Revolver. It is Guy Ritchie really earnestly trying to make a film that he wants to make. But it's hard to deny with Ebert's overall gesture... Revolver is not typically an enjoyable film. It's not typically a good film. I enjoyed it, but not for the reasons that Richie wanted me to. No. What else did it do? Well, Empire gave it 2 out of 5, and I did check the IMDb rating just to get an idea of the public reception, and it's actually somewhat positive for this type of film. And It got 6.5 out of 10, which is more than I thought it was going to get. I think it might have such a high rating because people actually haven't seen it. And those that have, although positive, are not incredibly so. It's more so getting a couple of high ratings based on the back of Guy Ritchie's followers. Yeah. But there's no counter-audience to really put that into perspective because this is a film that was really seen by no one. I mean, what did it make box office-wise? Oh, well, <laughs> let me tell you about that. <laughs> Usually we just jump straight into the American figures. It makes more sense as the battle for box office success is usually determined on the American market. But considering Revolver is a British film funded mostly with British money and made by a British crew, I think it's best if we judge it on its home soil. And even with that into consideration, it still made nothing. The UK box office in total was $3 million. Now, I don't know what that translates to in pounds, mm. but that isn't much at all. I couldn't find any further details on its UK box office other well, than it made such a paltry amount. Sometimes with independent films like this, they don't really want to show you the budgets if it didn't make much money. They only no. want to show you the budgets if it made shitloads. But if you thought that was low, at $3 million in the UK, what it made in America is going to astound you. It made, in all, 85k. $85,000. Yeah, just $85,000. I mean, it, it's why this release was 1830s, but even so, its theatre average was around about $2,000, which is incredibly low. If any film opened with a $2,000 theatre average, you'd be saying, it's a bomb. And this really was a bomb. The American screening was based on an entirely different edit of this film. The film was actually re-edited for an American audience. I did some research about the American cut of the film, and I will get into that in just a moment, because I actually think some of the cuts made to the film make it even less comprehensible than it already is. <laughs> but before I get into that, I need to tell you just when this film was released in America. It was released around Christmas and actually came 47th in it the charts. Wasn't it released Christmas 2007? Yes, it was. Yeah. So this is a full two years after it had come out in the UK. It does seem to me the film was quietly released and quickly brushed under the carpet. It was swept away. Okay, so when I actually researched into the US cut of the film, I expected it to be far more coherent, and it was anything but that. Just to give you an example, there's a scene in the film where Mark Strong's character, Sorter, 
He goes on a rampage when a little girl's safety is threatened. He pretty much kills all of the people he's with, and they're the people that have hired him. And it's all because he can't bear to see this little girl put in danger's way. It's a nice little turn of events for the character because we've already seen previously that he's a little bit softer and gentler than this hardened world. Yeah, he's very good at what he does, but he's got a sensitive side. So he goes on this rampage and he kills pretty much everybody that would put this girl in harm's way. And in the UK cut of the film, it unfortunately ends with him being shot and the little girl still being taken and delivered to Ray Liotta, who is at that point probably the most dangerous character in the film. In the American cut, however, his death scene is completely missing. So we are led to believe that he goes on a rampage because this little girl's safety is threatened and yet still delivers her to Mr. D, the most dangerous man in the film. It's completely inconsistent and you can see why it garnered such a strong reaction from the likes of Roger Ebert when it makes so little sense. Yeah. I mean, how did they take something already this messy and make it messier. How did they think that would work? I think it's just coming from a filmmaker who can't see what's wrong with the film in the first place and tries to fix it, Yeah, but ends up doing more damage because, again, he can't see what the original problems were. It sounds to me like he should have just stuck to his guns. The film that he had he's, made... He's done like an ippy-dippy yeah, on th- which problems will uh, get fixed and which ones won't. Yeah. <laughs> nippy-dippy. <laughs> I feel like he should have stuck to his guns, though, because although Revolver is a complete mess, it's still his film. That still was the film that he wanted to deliver, Mm. and that's the film that should have gone out. Because in tinkering with it further, after the fact, there's only one way to go with it. I think it's interesting as well, just to wrap this up, really, is to talk about the trailer that was released for the film, because it gives the impression that the film is part of that Guy Ritchie lockstock snatch world. It's almost marketed as being the cherry on top of that cake, like the third film in the trilogy. Yeah, and I thought it was as well when it came out. I thought, oh, this is a a Guy Ritchie gangster film. Yeah, it leads you to believe that it's a crime caper. And I can see why this film didn't land, because once those reviews started coming in, as poisonous as they were, audiences just instantly clocked on. Mm. that this wasn't a film that was being advertised. And uh, there's a couple of parts at the end that allude to the film that actually is. But on a more amusing note, there is a tagline that goes on during this trailer. And it does say, your mind will not accept a game this big. (laughs) Which is true. Perfect. It just leaves your mind frazzled at the end. That is the truest bit of marketing I've ever seen on (laughs) any film trailer. It almost comes across as tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah. And as a final cherry on this cake, marketing-wise, the original UK poster has the slogan, Brilliant, Guy Ritchie is back to his best, quoted from The Sun. And then, when you notice, it says The Sun, and then even smaller letters, it says The Sun Online. What happened was, The Guardian did some research into where this quote had come from, because this film had been critically lambasted all over the UK by critics. And what they found is that this quote had come from a Sun mini website promoting films, and that the quote had been used by an interviewer, but not from himself. This quote had come from a promotional package assembled by Redbus Films, who were in charge of marketing the film when it came out in the UK. They're actually classed as being the UK distributor. So 
all they're doing is quoting themselves, but via another source. So they're quoting themselves from a quote that's been quoted by somebody else. So <laughs> I don't know how that means. That's just as complicated as the film itself. But all they've done is quoted themselves and given the credit to somebody else. It's almost as good as when there was a pull quote on the Alien vs. Predator poster that said something about it being the best film they had ever seen from Paul Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was the Paul Anderson, but it made me laugh that it was the same name as the director. (laughs) So, Andy, should Revolver gain a second chance or instead be sent to death row? No. (laughs) (laughs) No to either. Just no. No. But am I saying no? (laughs) That is the question. This podcast isn't real. And what I want to do is put this note at the beginning of the review so we only know the context of it many, many months afterwards. <laughs> and what I'm going to do after this, I'm going to cut up the note into several different syllables and then reverse it backwards. Invert the image so it's a negative image. I'm going to rotoscope this and make it an animated musical. If any of our <laughs> listeners can make sense of that, you may be able to make sense of Revolver. <laughs> yes. So please watch it and get back to but us. But in all honesty, no, please bury this film. Yeah. <laughs> I won't say I'm conflicted, <laughs> let's let's say that I enjoyed the film in that I was never bored. No, I was astonished. I was confused. <laughs> I was dumbfounded. I was curiously aroused at the sight of Statham's facial hair. I was aroused at the sight of Leota's bottom. <laughs> Going back from last week, we're interested in Dennis Quaid's bottom. So this week it's Ray Liotta's bottom. Yeah, we've got to keep those bottoms going, yeah. guys. Keep your eyes on those bottoms. <laughs> It's clear that Guy Ritchie wears his heart on his sleeve, despite the film not working on any level whatsoever. And he's trying to make something that's more than what he's known for, even though he doesn't have the talent to succeed in that. It's a B-plus for effort. Yeah, I really want to give him kudos for the effort, for trying something different. I still don't think I should have seen it, or anybody should have seen it, and it should have probably gone on the shelf next to the day the clown cried we're talking about (laughs) films that were never released it should have definitely never seen the light of day but i have to agree this is a film that should be buried it's a film that should be given the chair and it's reluctantly so i'll put it there because i hate to say that about a film that's got so much passion and effort put into it because it isn't very good it's the rare instance when i wish a completion bond company would have stolen the film from richie and edited themselves yeah because it might have made a bit more sense that's the most frustrating thing there is some semblance of a good film in there it's just yeah. been fucked around with so much that uh, it just isn't i've said it time and time again but there are plenty of great scenes and if you want to see a film that has many individual scenes that are great in and of themselves this film will work for you, but in the whole, it just doesn't come together. Yeah. Instead, it falls apart. And for any fan editors out there, maybe get a copy of this film, maybe even both cuts of the film, and see if you can try and make a coherent cut of it, and I'd love to see it. It may only be about 25 minutes <laughs> yeah, long. Yeah, absolutely. But, but it'll be worth watching. It'll be worth watching, definitely. And that's all we have time for for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, and get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Join us next week when Andy and I will be watching Danny Glover fight hunter aliens, voodoo crime lords, and crippling obesity in Stephen Hopkins' Predator 2. For now, it's bye from Andy. Bye-bye. And bye from myself. See you next time.